When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Stephanie Powers. You're listening to TV Confidential. Ed Robertson, with a reminder that we'll play part two of our conversation with Barbara Felden later on in this hour. We hope you stay tuned for that. In the meantime, Chuck Carter is with us in the studio for this segment as we continue our conversation with Simon Napier-Bell. Simon Napier-Bell, legendary record producer, music manager, author, journalist, documentary filmmaker, and a raconteur. Simon is with us via Zoom. Simon's books on the music industry include Black Vinyl, White Powder, Sour Mouth, Sweet Bottom, I'm Coming to Take You to Lunch, and the book we've been talking about over the past few minutes, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me. All of Simon's books available Amazon.com, other online retailers. Simon also writes a Substack column that you can enjoy for free at Substack.com forward slash at Simon Napier Bell. Before we went to break, Simon was sharing a few stories about some of the things he learned about music management while he was managing such groups as the Yardbirds and John's children, including how a great rock group is not always necessarily a group of the best musicians, but the best coming together of musicians who work well together. Chuck? In talking about group members that may not be great musicians, but good for the group, John's children were not great musicians, but they were incredible people, as you say, and put on wild shows. And, and something I didn't appreciate at the time, but I did quite soon enough, was that Andy Ellison, who's not a great vocalist, not a great depth of voice, has the most per- perfect tuning of any singer I've ever heard. Really? Mm. It's extraordinary. I didn't realise at the time. I just thought it's a bit of a weak voice. It's okay. And it carries the song okay, but not, not fantastic. And then when I listened years later, it, I mean, he, he, he would put tuning machines out of work. I mean, wow. he's absolutely has impeccable tuning. Wow. I've never heard him play even a hit, sing even a hint of a wrong note or bend a note wrong. You don't recognise when you listen to music, music always all the different things which make it up, make up the, the sound. And they did have a certain sound, and part of that sound was his voice, which wasn't a big, strong voice, right. but always had this impeccable tuning. He was more in tune than any of the instruments. Wow. And then there was the chicken feathers in Germany, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were good stories. <laughs> And all true. All true. All, no. all true. And you can read about them in You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, The History of 60s Pop by uh, Simon Napier-Bell, a book that was originally published 35 years ago but has been constantly in print ever since. It is a must-read if, if you're interested in not just music of the 1960s, uh, the London scene in the 1960s, but just music history in general. It is available wherever books are sold online, Amazon.com, correct? Yeah. I do a weekly substack, putting a piece out each week. This gives you a thousand words. Now, it's nearly every, nearly all this old stuff from the other books. And I take a chapter and I cut it down and I rewrite it a bit, polish it up, knock it down to a thousand words. So I've read all the books over in the last year finding my weekly piece. And um, that book 
<laughs> some of them, I read them. If I hadn't written it, remember when I wrote writing it, it, it was true. I'm not very inventive, actually. I tell a story well, but I, I'm not very good at inventing things. I don't need to. I mean, no. I, I, I look at life around me, and I think, why do people have to invent anything? I mean, there it all is. But those stories, like, like the story where we went to this record company and we just to pass some time. Oh, and uh, we said we've written a song and it's yep. the greatest song ever and the guy said well, yeah, can I hear it and I said oh it's so good we were afraid to record it because it might get stolen yeah. right. then he said sing it, sing it for me we just sat down and improvised something as a joke we thought the guy was a bit of a so he I was. thought you know, let's he just was <laughs> he's a bloody <laughs> let's just sing a load of rubbish and he got to the end and he was so confused he said yeah I'll make, make it for me that's good we ran out with a check and he Oh, yeah. 10,000 pounds, 10,000 pounds. That's wonderful. Uh, $10,000. Yeah, yeah. And you know what that is today? That's a hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Right. We you went and, on holiday, both went on holidays separately for about three months each. Well, you and, and you and you and you and Ray Singer were such put on artists. <laughs> it's just great. Cause I, I, I saw record executives in the early eighties in LA who were that stupid. That you could, if you just. The problem for me in the industry is, is when you're brought into the industry, you do remember what you see first right. in everything. You know, this is the reason you stay with your wife because you you look at your fifty year old wife and you're actually seeing a beautiful eighteen year old girl. Is it? So it's good we remember what we see first. You know? <laughs> it is. But, it is. but the first record company I ever went to was Decca, mm. which is on the it's by the river on the wrong side of the river in the middle of London, a dreary building. Inside was all painted that government green that you get in, in post offices and things that are awful colour. And um, and somehow I talked the commissioner into letting me see someone at A&R. I'd, I'd made this record, uh, which I'd never made a record before in my life, but I met these three guys and they said, would you, would you manage us? I thought, that might be interesting. And we decided to make a record and I took it off to the to Decca. And I saw this guy at A&R, gave him the record and he put it on and listened to it. And he was really a, one of those miserable... You know, he's going to say everything bad he can and be a downer. And he picked his nose while he was listening and wiped and snot on the bottom of his desk. I was watching him do that. <laughs> <laughs> got to the end. Got to the end. He said, oh, I don't like it. Not a good song, he said. And, and, and the guys don't catch the beat. I remember the word he said. No, that's not good. Threw it back across the desk. Really, he sort of brought me down. And then he says, uh, so what do you want for it? <laughs> yeah. So I had, no, I had no idea. I'd never been to a record, but I had no idea what, what the deal was. So he gave me a deal. Not a big one, but something. Now, I was in the music business. That's it. Right now. That's my launch into business. So I was thrilled. But as I went out of the building, I thought, if he didn't like it, why did he give me a deal? And yeah. if he did like it, why did he tell me he didn't? And I thought, you know, what a complete... Yeah. And... It's been, it was difficult ever after to think of A&R men any differently. I mean, that's, that, he set the, the tone for how I thought of A&R the rest of my life. So some good A&R people came along, but I always was seeing that man in my mind. Well, there were a lot of him. Uh, one more quickie on, on You Don't Have to Say You Love Me. Diane and Nikki. Tell me uh -huh. about them with the racially mixed singers. Do you know I didn't know at the time? In England, and so it must have been the same in America, there'd never been a mixed race act. There'd been black singers who sang with white dance bands uh, quite quite often. Um, but there'd actually never been a, a mixed act. I mean, I, it didn't even occur to me. I was brought up in a totally liberal household. And, you know, I, I, if I have any prejudices, I prefer people with dark skin and they're more interesting and cooler and everything else. You know, so 
So I I had no idea there could even be Nickridges, but only when I put the act together and started playing it round did I realise that, that there was a huge prejudice. That he was a very good-looking young guy who was 19, he had blonde hair, sort of petite, and this very pretty girl who was at the same height, so they made a lovely thing, and she was very black, but very pretty. And um, we got some photos done, just head and shoulder. They were naked from the neck up, but they were just showed the shoulders, you know. I mean, and it, it had that look that, you know, if you wanted to think about it, perhaps they were naked from the shoulders down too. But, you know, it's like, like ridiculous. You, would, you wouldn't even use a picture like that nowadays because it's too boring. And then I had this huge blow-up made of it, uh, a 10 by 8, so it, it wouldn't go through a letterbox. And then I sent it with the record to every single record producer and DJ <laughs> and radio producer in England, knowing, because we had a proper postal service in those days, which came at six in the morning, yeah. knowing that the postman would wake them up. And so the next day I knew that every single leading person in the industry would get woken up by the postman with this letter which wouldn't go through the box, and they'd open it and look at it. And of course they turned it down. There were four, 400 singles a week coming out. There's room for three new ones a week on all the radio stations. There were five radio stations in those days. Um, of course, no one was going to play it because yeah, it wasn't a great record. And that week, with three records by Stones and the Beatles and coming out, there was no space for a new artist. But, but, but I called everyone, found every single one of the 400. I said, You're going to play the record? And they all said, Oh, I'm a terrible story. And, you know, and I was really a pig. You know, I just said, You're a racist. You're a racist. And they all played it. <laughs> they, they, didn't, they didn't like being called a record. Yeah. So this not really good record shot, shot to number five the first week. Brilliant. It's amazing. Brilliant. Uh, do you know Steve Bender, or have you crossed paths with Steve Bender in, in, in your career? Steve, uh, the name is very familiar. I, I mean, I'm not uh, getting a face in my head. He wrote and produced the Tammy Show, the movie uh, in '64, and then he did Hullabaloo, and he 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 produced the Elvis. Yeah. He produced the Elvis special in '68. Oh, that one. Yeah, okay. Okay. okay, all right. Around the same time you're trying to launch this black and white duo, Bender was producing a special for NBC television with Petula Clark. And Petula Clark's guest for the special was Harry Belafonte. And yep. the highlight of the special is they sing this song, and um, this, this wasn't scripted. This is just what, this is, this is something she did in the moment. She put her arm around... Harry Belafonte. And when the sponsors saw the rough cut of that, they got on the horn and they said, take that out. Take that out. Um, It's incredible, but an arm round. With with Don and Nikki, when we did the rehearsal, we we got every television show too. I got every radio station, every television show. And we did the rehearsal for one of the big shows. It's called Thank You Lucky Stars in Birmingham. Yes. And and at the end of the Mm -hmm. rehearsal, I... I told Nicky to do it. I said, just when you finish the song, just lean across and kiss Diane on the cheek. Just a little peck on the cheek. Yeah. And the director rushed up and said, you can't do that. Well, of course, once he said that, we were going to do it. You know. Yeah. So, so on the live broadcast, the kiss was even bigger. Mm. Brilliant. <laughs> but how, I mean, to be shocked by that. And yeah. then I was thinking later, do you know what? Maybe it wasn't even to do with her being black. Maybe you couldn't even do that between two ordinary, two white people. I mean, I don't know. What were they shocked at? Perhaps, perhaps it was just you didn't do that. Well, it, you know, t- t- times were different, and again, this is one of the differences between the American television and television in England, which is that you you don't, I'm speaking off the top of my head, you'll correct me if I get something wrong, you don't have to deal with sponsors, so to speak, 
as is the case on American television. Not in the same way, no. Yeah, yeah that's true. So, but they're self-editing, you know, all these producers. They're worried about losing this. It's the same thing in a way, you know. Going back to what you were saying about Belafonte and Petula Plug, did Nat King Cole ever have white guests on his program? He did. Stand next to them and sing with them? He did, but I, I think it was because, I mean, in fact, I, if I remember correctly, Either Sinatra appeared on his show or Nat appeared on Sinatra's show because Sinatra had a yeah. show on ABC. But it was it was a man and a woman. It was a white woman and a black yeah. man uh, at the height of the civil rights tension. And, oh. and you know, I forget which sponsor it was, but they were worried about their affiliates in the South and so forth and so on. Yep, yeah. all that. And at the end of the day, there was no hullabaloo, so to speak. You know, I mean, it, yeah, it, yeah, was, yeah. it was it was all good. And, ben, and and like you, as soon as Bender got pushback, he said, "I'm going to leave it in." <laughs> and he did. Well, you have to stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. One more item, if you like me and want to eat better this year, our friends at Factor have more than 35 inexpensive, pre-prepared, ready-to-heat and ready-to-eat, chef-crafted, restaurant-quality, and dietitian approved meals that will make eating better every day fun and delicious, and your weekly meal planning a whole lot easier with no prepping, no cooking, and no cleanup necessary. Check it out yourself by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk. TV50. If you go to factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50, you'll find more than 35 different options a week to choose from that are ready to eat and, best of all, less expensive than takeout. Sign and save right now by going to factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50 and use code talk TV50 to get 50% off your order. Factormeals.com forward slash talk TV50. Use promo code talk TV50 to get 50% off your order. That's code TV 50 at factormeals.com forward slash TV 50 to get 50% off. Simon Napier-Bell is with us via Zoom. Simon Napier-Bell, legendary record producer, music manager, author, journalist, entrepreneur, documentary filmmaker, and raconteur. Simon's books on the music industry include Black Vinyl, White Powder, Sour Mouth, Sweet Bottom, I'm Coming to Take You to Lunch, and the book we've been talking about over the past few minutes, You Don't Have to Say You Love Me. All of Simon's books available Amazon.com, other online retailers. Simon also writes a Substack column that you can enjoy for free at substack.com forward slash at Simon Napier Bill. Chuck? Well, let, let's jump to another subject and another great book you've done. I'm coming to take you to lunch or wham in China. Let's talk a yeah, little about a George Michael and Andrew Widgley and you going to China. Well, it's about how I got the Chinese to uh, agree that they should go and play there. I mean, the book is, is mainly about that, about how I did it rather than the actual concept. It was, it was a fun, long experience, interesting experience. I had a banishing partner, Jazz Summers. When we first met, we won. George said straight away, we want to be the biggest group in the world, and you've got a year, and I, I just burst out laughing. I mean, it's a wonderful, youthful arrogance, and artists should have that. I mean, I don't object to that. You know, If kids are not like that, they're not going to get anywhere. But <laughs> even the Beatles took five years to break in America. You don't, you know, it's impossible. America had no national newspapers. It had no national it didn't have because of the timing it didn't have a national program which went out simultaneously everywhere peak viewing times didn't have MTV well, just starting to have MTV then and it was something he said from ignorance but at the same time his youthful arrogance he wanted that and um, so we chatted over dinner and I, I think the jazz 
It, I think the idea jumped out of a fifth bottle of wine. It was the wine's idea. <laughs> uh, but somebody said, you know, why not be the first people we have to play in communist China and you'll be all over newspapers. And George liked that. He said, yeah, but do that. Fix that. Good. Okay, that's now. It's dealt with. We'll be number one in a year. And I didn't mind at all because I love Asia. And I've, it hadn't been then as much as I have now. And so I thought, that's great. I'll leave jazz in London. He can manage them. And um, I'll just go to Asia. The sky around. So just a week later, I, there I was in China, but it, it wasn't easy because I went to the embassy the very next day and tried to get a visa, and you couldn't get a visa for China unless you had a government invitation and travelled in a group. They had to be business invited. Really? Well, no tourists. No. The only tourists allowed in were from Russia. You had in tourists, which is a Russian company, that was allowed into China. But then somebody told me he knew somebody in Hong Kong. If I went to see him, he'd give me a little bit of paper and it would get me in. And, so I went and saw this guy in Hong Kong, and I flew the next day to Hong Kong, and I went to see this friend, and paid him $1,000 or something, $100 probably. And he gave me a bit of paper, he took, well, not a stamp, he just put it inside my passport, and take the train to Guangzhou, which is a one-hour train journey from Hong Kong, and then when you get off at the station, you'll be in China, and you, you go to the immigration, you go to the far-left booth, far-left booth, there's a man called Wong Sin, and if he's not on duty, just wait, don't go out. When Wang Xing comes on duty, you give him the passport with this bit of paper in it. He'll let you in. For about hundred dollars went. And so, uh, a day later, a day after that, I was standing on the free side, the inside side of um, the immigration in in Guangzhou Station. Free, a man in China who couldn't speak a word of Chinese, completely not allowed to be there, with no rights or papers to be there, and no idea of what to do. And I stood there thinking, right, well, I'm going to play in China. Who's going to be able to say yes to that? And the only person I could think of was Deng Xiaoping, the president of China, probably the second or third most important person in the entire world. So how do I get from Guangzhou Station without the right even to get on a bus or a plane to actually pulling it off? So that's quite, makes quite a good book. It is. The book is I'm Coming to Take You to Lunch. Wham in China by Simon Napier Bell. Highest recommendation. Anything by Simon Napier Bell. Highest recommendation. Well, you should get that book, and you should read that book while you're enjoying The Real George Michael, which is Simon's excellent documentary biography on the life and career and influence of George Michael, which is available viewing on demand. Amazon Prime. And again, it's another example of what a wonderful storyteller you are, Simon, although documentary storytelling by, by nature is different than prose writing, but you captured the essence of all the people that you profile, and you really give us a glimpse of who George was as a person. That's what I was trying to do. I was trying to show who he was as a person and how how his art came from his personality. You know, I wasn't very interested in delving into things which had nothing to do with what we heard or saw creative, creatively, but um, most of the documentaries I've seen were so trivial on the surface, and, uh, and you'd have a commentator. I didn't have any commentary in mind. I just had people talking, and it flowed together. You know, you have those commentators, and say, then George thought this, and you know, yeah, yeah. You know what George thought, and you know, those sort of things. Everyone in that film knew George or worked with him or had reacted with him or been affected by him in some way. And uh, it, was, it was really interesting to make it, because I learned things too, and I, I don't talk in it, because I just figured... I know what I think. I'm interested to hear what everybody else thinks. And, you know, it, it was pretty 
it was pretty homogenous. That's why it all flowed together so well, because people did all think much the same. They all had different stories and different viewpoints. But everyone just thought him as a, as a fantastic artist, a very disturbed person, but all artists are. I mean, right. you work on any great artist <laughs> who's not pretty disturbed, and that's that's the strange thing about the music industry. It, it depends on mentally distressed people for its 60 billion a year income. You know, there we are. It's and probably not the only industry which does that. No, no, but lot. yeah, and even though obviously I knew that George had passed, I I felt sad when the end came at the end of your film, if that makes sense. That was a, that was something I yeah, I mean I, I was pleased I, I I sort of pulled that off because when you're telling a story and everybody knows the ending, it's difficult to make the ending, uh, you know, exciting. I yeah. say a high, it's not a high he does, but I mean you know a, an ending which you get there and you think wow it's a really good ending. But um, I think I contrived to do that and and to be quite accurate, you know, in doing it too. And it, so I, I was. Pretty pleased with it. Another thing too, this week, the Wham, yesterday, the Wham film, which has been out this year too, has done incredibly well. Just got nominated for a BAFTA. So, oh, really? Uh, Excellent. This is really, that's really good too. And and ours might be too, because ours was a television film. This that was a cinema film. Mm -hmm. So that's been nominated for cinema BAFTA, and the television BAFTAs are another two months time. So ours is in for that too. Excellent. Congratulations on the nomination and. And uh, uh, we, 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 I don't remember whether we mentioned this before we started recording. Let me, if not, let me mention it now. Both in your documentary uh, storytelling and in your writing, uh, uh, particularly "You Don't Have to Say You Love Me," which is the, the one book of yours that I've read. Um, Chuck has read all the others. You write with such depth and soul. You tell all of the ro rollicking adventures, but you slow down. And there are real, there are many moments where, as a reader, I was moved. Well, you know, the idea that when we, everybody has to pretty much decide how they want to be in life. Mm -hmm. I like, doesn't behave, but actually be. I mean, you know, we are in control of our own minds. Mm -hmm. We can decide to be very morose or happy, and we can edit what we're thinking quite easily. And I think most people prefer to live reasonably happily. And I guess people you call mentors are served to people who, who in a way don't or who want to go back and dwell on things which are not happy and then make them a larger part of their life and I'm somebody who just thinks you should present things fun I mean it, life is fun yeah, and, is. and some people get misled you know, they say wow it's an amazing life you've never had a bad moment well I've had terrible moments you know <laughs> and um, you know suicidal moments I don't want to read about that yeah. the, I mean, the last five or six years has been a great trend towards literature which is that isn't it book after book comes out about people telling you they're dreadful ah, go see a therapist <laughs> Well, your your book didn't dwell on that first uh, teenage uh, Simon encountering the black jazz musician who showed you an interest that he had, which made you say, "No, mate, I'm out of here. Not going to do it. Not going to play." It was uh, it was like a cobra. <laughs> it was a cobra. Bloody hell. And, and to find out what we're talking about, folks, you got to pick up a copy of You Don't Have to Say You Love Me, a scurrilous memoir of the 60s music business. Any aspiring music star or music fan, music historian should read it. That's from the Daily Mirror. You Don't Have to Say You Love Me uh, by Simon Napier Bell, available wherever books are sold, Amazon.com, other 
retailers, and of course, the real George Michael, uh, Simon's excellent documentary on the life and career and influence of George Michael, available Amazon.com. Simon Napier-Bell will be back next week for part two of our conversation. We'll talk some more about his early years in music management in London, the height of the swinging 60s. We'll also talk about working with Burt Bacharach on the film score of What's New Pussycat and the story of how Tom Jones became the right singer to sing the title song of that movie. All that more when Simon Napier-Bell joins us for part two of our conversation next week on TV Confidential. We hope you join us for that. In the meantime, and speaking of the swinging 60s, when we come back, we'll play part two of our conversation with Barbara Belden, Agent 99 from Get Smart. We come back on TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.